With the inception and traction that blockchain and crypto has gathered, the world is possibly on the verge of the largest evolution since the mainstream of the internet. Given the fluidity and dynamic nature of this technology, business leaders, enthusiasts, and veterans all need to band together to navigate the current and upcoming storms. Participants in Web 3.0 want a trusted resource that gives them pertinent information about projects, tokens, technology, and businesses. We are business people talking the business of crypto. We are Y Whales. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, YWales, wherever in the world you are today. Welcome to episode 18 of YWeb3, Navigating Frontier Tech. Uh, we're going to explore the latest trends of digital landscapes. Uh, so from regulatory changes impacting the crypto space to shifts in anti-money laundering rules, uh, we're really going to undercover uncover the dynamic intersection of technology and policy. Uh, we'll talk about the aftermath of the infamous uh, cryptocurrency platform FTX, analyze the significant drop in crypto crime, uh, and the transformative collaboration between two nations in building a joint digital economy. Uh, stay tuned. We've got a lot of insights over uh, about AI, the doomsday clock that, that continually shows back up. Uh, AI is now an existential threat uh, and some exciting new developments in the NFT space along with cross-chain NFT marketplaces. Uh, that this week and more on uh, YWeb3. So most importantly, I've got uh, a guest today. Uh, she's been here many times before. We've recorded numerous podcasts with her. You're, you're a specialist on deep dive and, and so many things. Um, Lucia, go ahead and uh, for anyone who does not know you, please please give that your intro as always. Well, hi, thanks for having me. I love being here every single time. I was telling you I love it because it forces me to just pay so much extra attention to what's going on in the world because I'm like, Ugh, I might have to might have to talk on this and some of the stories are ones that I might not ordinarily get into just because they, you know, freak me out or creep me out or whatever. Um namely the doomsday ones that you're referring to, but we'll get into it. <laughs> So I'm Lucia Gallardo, founder of Emerge. We're an experimentation lab that has uh, focused for the past few years on helping enterprises and governments converge their impact uh, goals along with their innovation goals. Um, and so we have worked on you know, use cases relating to digital identity, uh, to loyalty, uh, supply chain. We've done some work in finance and financial inclusion and agriculture. Um, so it's been a really interesting way to just see how uh, AI and blockchain sort of have this applicability across different sectors and use cases for different people um, and who they benefit and ultimately how to roll them out uh, to people. So we've worked in nearly every continent, um, not Antarctica yet, but, you know, I'm sure I'll find a way. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm super keen to be here, super keen to dive into some of these uh, projects and, I think if you have listened to me before in this podcast, you will know I also have a soft spot for politics and philosophy. So I'm really keen to bring those into our headlines today as well. Awesome. Awesome. Well, let's dive right into the stories. Um, there's so many to, to go through. And so, you know, right off the bat, um, since the last time you were on, you know, obviously the Bitcoin ETFs did get approved. Um, we did not see kind of, you know, there's there's always the people that said Bitcoin was going to, you know, make an immediate double because these ETFs are live. And what it turns out that the ETFs have, have been right now is just a gateway to uh, allow FTX uh, as well as some other institutionals to sell, legally yeah. sell their holdings of Bitcoin um, to the normal market. So we've seen uh, Grayscale, which was the largest uh, institutional mm -hmm. holder 
of, of Bitcoin and they've, they've been so for years and years and years. I think their average cost was, you know, un, under a couple hundred bucks. Um, and they've now, uh, you know, acquired all this. They had their, you know, it wasn't a spot ETF. It was a different type. Um, and now they've converted to a spot and they're just selling and BlackRock and everyone else is buying. But we're seeing that kind of downward pressure because you do have someone that wants to unload, you know, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Bitcoin from theirs. So um, what was your thought when you saw all that go through? I mean, to be honest, it, it was expected. Like you knew that there was going to be major sell-off as soon as they got approved. I think Grayscale has a, a really large position. I think now that FTX has also finished liquidating a lot of its assets, then like we might see a little bit of a recovery in in that. But I I mean, the goal was really ETFs are supposed to create this like long-term funnel of capital into the ecosystem, and that will have a huge impact and outweigh halving, and it'll go miles into helping us institutionalize the entire asset class. However, um, it was very expected that there would be this initial sell-off that ultimately, you know, you would be able to uh, get rid of any large-scale risk that you might be holding if you were a grayscale that had had some issues with something like an FTX. Now, that said... I think in the past, in the past, there's a new headline, something saying ETFs amassed like 100,000 Bitcoin incredibly quickly over, you know, what is a couple of days, if not, you know, maybe a week or something. Yeah. MicroStrategy had been trying to amass that amount and it took them like, what, two years, two and a half years. And so, yeah, longer. yeah so I think like this is just showing you like, sure, there's definitely a sell off and there is this intent to sell, but just as eagerly, there is this intent to buy. And, and you sort of saw a lot of these ETFs buy, buy, buy. And so that's telling you, that, you know, these dynamics are very short term. And what you're going to see is ultimately long term interest. Um, that said, I think Deutsche Bank put out a report recently. They surveyed people across Europe, um, the EU and the UK. Now that those have to be expressed separately. And, uh, <laughs> and ultimately, they found a lot of market pessimism uh, along yep. people thinking that like that we hadn't seen the bottom, that they expected that by January 2025, Bitcoin would hit lower than 20,000. So there's still, I think, some hesitation to get through. I think FTX did a lot of reputational damage. I think, you know, people expecting ETFs to be like an immediate huge push into the ecosystem and then it turning out to be a drop in the market. I think those things have sort of scared off a couple of, of, you know, possible retail investors. What I think is going to happen is we need to make sure that we cap this off into a little bit of stability across the market, that we see some healthy, healthy recovery from this initial downturn. Um, and then hopefully we'll see the market pick up. Um, but I think, you know, if I remember correctly, historically, I think this is sort of what indicates the start of a super cycle. So I'm yeah, and, and we're still still coming up on the having and all that other stuff. It doesn't change. And and the the story that's on the screen right now is about um, not the Bitcoin ETF, but the Ethereum okay. ETF, um, okay. which is even more insane to to think about because you know Bitcoin is is theoretically a store of value, and ETF and yeah. e Ethereum is you know it's a server credit. <laughs> you know, it's it's not cash. It's anything else. So um, I think what's really interesting is is they're already delaying, which they delayed until the very last possible seconds yeah. uh, on the Bitcoin one. There, there's probably Ethereum is is as the number two crypto cryptocurrency is going to get it on spot uh, spot ETF. But to me, I think what we're really seeing now um, is, is, and I'll, I'll say, you know, as clearly and, and nice as I can, that the total failure of, of the Web3 asset class on custody. Um, no one trusts, uh, you know, FTX was a failure. You know, there's time and time again, every exchange has failed. And so now you're finding institutions 
uh, you know, like BlackRock and everyone else, they, they go, look, we'd rather put a legal wrapper on it, have the SEC, but put their normal, you know, kind of governance over this um, and, and manage custody from that perspective. You know, this is not a, they're not making anything new. They're just, you know, managing the ability to buy it and have it, you know, custodied legally uh, per se. Yeah. I think, I mean, there, the Ethereum ETF, I think will be delayed possibly even more often than the Bitcoin ETF, just because there's so many different versions of describing Ethereum. And I think that there's a problem here because regulators, obviously, some of them don't fully understand the scope of the technology. They don't think that we as an industry are aligned. I remember uh, last year in Davos, I was at a lunch, a regulatory lunch um, with a congressman from the US who said, you guys don't even have your narrative straight. Like, how are we supposed to understand them? And you know, we were trying to explain, well, that's the beauty of a decentralized ecosystem is that like, you know, there's different, different applications, there's fragmented use cases, there's, and it's supposed to be like that. And so I think, you know, Hester Pierce came out and publicly stated that they had learned a lot from the way that they had handled Bitcoin ETFs. And I think Mm -hmm. that that's going to hold true for Ethereum ETFs. I think one of the things that she was sensitive to in her interview was she was saying how, inherently like the disclosure and the use of the product itself didn't line up very often. And so I think here you're going to run into more of that friction because Ethereum has had so many use cases built into it. Um, Whereas you're right, Bitcoin has historically had many use cases, but really its strength has been that it had a cohesive narrative around the store of value. Whereas Ethereum is sort of this huge ecosystem that inherently makes it much more difficult for regulators to really understand the financial product version of this and how that translates into something that is safe for retail investors. Yeah. I, and I, my own personal opinion is this is so much less interesting than the Bitcoin ETF. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's, it's just quite simply, it's, I, I don't, I don't expect uh, too much on it. Um, <clears throat> So jumping over uh, a little bit more SEC stuff, which I know you love. Uh, so so Coinbase is a really interesting one. They are an SEC governed uh, entity. They they IPO. They legally you know legally went through that process. They've been around for a long time. They adhere to anything and everything they can. Um, the SEC is is basically been ruling by by litigation, which is very strange. Uh, historically, that's not the way the SEC does it. They want to have uh, you know create opportunity. They want to to create rules that that benefit and 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 uh, protect consumers. Um, and I think that it's really shown in this case. And we've seen Brian Armstrong. He's a very rampant tweeter, <clears throat> um, uh, or whatever X calls it nowadays. That you and I were talking about earlier. And um, and so I really do feel that that Coinbase will prevail in this. And I I agree with. Uh, Bloomberg here, 70% is, is very favorable when we're talking about against the SEC. Um, it, to me, this is just showing, you know, that, that this administration has lost its way. Um, there's clearly consumer demands. There, there's clearly, you know, the desire to, to uh, you know, legislate this correctly. Uh, and the SEC is just suing people and bringing them to court and, and shutting it down. So I, I feel like there's a misalignment of, of values on here. But what are, you, what, are your, what are your thoughts? Totally. I think you're a complete villain for saying I love SEC-related things. And then people that are only listening to the audio can't see my face when you say that. <laughs> so, so thanks for that. But I think, um, I mean, Coinbase is an interesting one. There's a lot I could say about them and Brian as a, as a you know, Xer or Twitter yeah. or, or whatever we want to call it. Um, I think at the end of the day, Coinbase has done a lot right in terms of how they've handled the situation. Like they were quite proactive. They, it was clear they were on top of whatever announcements the SEC was making. And the problem is that the SEC was so, you know, 
flip floppy about the announcements that they were making that I think the fact that Coinbase can legitimately prove that they responded to some of the you know initial asks and announcements and requests and so on and so forth really builds this narrative around how you know they tried to the best of their ability. Now, what this really is a reflection of is the shortcomings, not just that the administration has lost its way, but I think it really it speaks to a wider issue of you know who is regulating things that they don't understand. And how does that translate into an ability for people to be compliant with the outcomes of that? So I think what it really goes to show is that regulation has always been reactive, like we've known that forever. And I think we've entered this era where it can no longer be that way, right? We are starting to see the incredible need for subject matter expertise to be on the regulatory side, to anticipate some of these you know, questions and to anticipate some of these regulatory clarity needs. And I think it it really speaks to this resistance to change in a, like from a political standpoint, I think you're looking at, you know, people that don't necessarily understand this new economy. They don't know how they fit into this new economy. They don't know how to preserve some of the things that give them power or wealth within this new economy. And then that translates into just trying to drag it over, but it is inevitable and retail investors are asking for it. And I think, you know, people all around the world are sort of figuring out where, you know, they come, they become important into the economy. And so I think regulation is facing a really significant hurdle in the trust factor and in this ability to be proactive at some of the technology that's coming their way. And I think Coinbase is a perfect little example of that. But I also think this conversation that we're going to have on AI is a perfect example of it because both of those are, you know, being driven by these narratives of mistrust in the media. But if you look at Coinbase's trajectory of trying to at least adhere to some of the the outcomes that the SEC was putting out, then you sort of see that there's a two-side story to this and that actually the lack of clarity, the lack of preparedness, the lack of expertise, and this indecisiveness about how to build a new economic system or a new political system or a new whatever system that sort of keeps everything in status quo is a big factor to resistance to change and it's going to keep hindering the SEC's ability to respond. I, I love that answer because it just, it showcases the dire need for education in yeah. our, in our political system. And it's not um, just about blockchain and it's not just about vilifying oh God, blockchain. No. It's also about vilifying anything that inherently, you know, challenges the way that things currently work. And that's going to be true of nearly every like critical technological innovation in the foreseeable future, because we've reached this era of like exponential technology that just enables so much and it challenges and sets these new precedents, and it's really changing the structure of how a lot of things operate, both in the private sector and in the public sector. And so to me, the impact of that is really, you know, something that has so much potential, but is going to meet this resistance from existing regulation that seems to still think that it can survive as a reactive body um, that responds to, to technology as it sort of happens, as opposed to trying to anticipate it or trying to build alongside it. Before we start on our next topic, here's something really exciting. Everyone struggles with these really highly complex, you know, intricate Ethereum names. ENS has a solution that's really game-changing for you. Revolutionizing your digital identity with ENS. Transform long, complex Ethereum name addresses into easy-to-remember names, safely, securely, and uniquely yours. Visit ENS.app to get started today, and ENS welcomes you to the new internet. Yeah, 
And and I think that this uh, this next article really showcases exactly mm-hmm. that uh, you know clearly for for especially the SEC um, that under Ginsler we're at a ten year high uh, for enforcement actions. And you know the, these are not you know Coinbase, Kraken, um, you know leave some of the other ones out of out of here. You know they're they're really trying. Like they went and said we want clarity. There's consumer. There's consumer demand. Uh, there's there's other countries around the world that are legislating and, and providing us clarity. Uh, the EU, you know, my car, my car is, is is as clear as day on you know how to manage and and, and deal with these things in relation to Mifid two. Um, but but here we are, you know, and and they're just handing out fines, um, you know, and, and trying to shut down innovation. And I, I can say, you know, my my fear of this is had we had this mentality in the '90s. When the internet was rising, um, we probably would not be talking to our to to each other right now uh, mm-hmm. with the technology we're using today. Because it quite simply, you would never would have allowed startups to be able to appear. You would never have been able to allow them to mature and grow into what they are today um, if if everyone was just you know fear of getting sued. Yeah. And I think, I mean, here you really see the impact of it in the amount of innovation that's happening abroad. You're really starting to see international startups, international, you know, international to the U.S. Because I'm also international to the U.S., FYI. Um, But I think you're really starting to see, you know, certain markets. Like I was talking to someone about the impact that Argentina has had in the development of Ethereum in, you know, with Open Zeppelin coming out of Argentina. I think Sandbox or uh, Decentraland Mm -hmm. has some founders that are Argentinian and um, it's really had an impact and you see sort of everything that's going on in Africa. You're looking at all of these different players and entities from different markets really start to shine because the U.S. is like legitimately holding its own innovators back. And you're starting to see a lot of migration of U.S. startups piloting internationally or moving their operations internationally. And then the other bit of that is, you know, as a regulating entity, the SEC has historically been you know, at the very top of, you know, where other jurisdictions want to emulate. And then today you can't really say the same thing. And actually the EU has really capitalized on this and fall, you know, wherever you want on the spectrum of you think the EU should be a thing or shouldn't be a thing. The reality is today, everyone's looking at them as the status quo of like what you aspire to have as regulatory standards. And that's not even just on the uh, on the finance side, it's also on the you know privacy side on an identity yep. on the yep. ESG and environmental standards as well. So they're really starting to understand how they, as a you know unified regulating body, can really set better precedents. And I think the gap between what's going on with regulation in the EU and what's going on with regulation in the US is just starting to become incredibly, incredibly wide. And, you know, the fact that one of those markets is punitive, whereas the other one is proactively legislating consistently, I think that that's just going to change the structure of how innovation takes place, where it takes place, and who has first market access to a lot of the things that are happening next. And unfortunately for Americans, it might not be them. I, well, I, I can tell you for a fact, you know, I, I clearly am a U.S. citizen um, and, you know, I've built, you know, companies for, for you know, over two decades, uh, you know, longer than that here in the United States. I, I know the, the system well. I, I, I firmly like I am a, a capitalist as, as clear and day, as clear as day. Um, FinRamp, which is which is YWale's, you know, new startup, uh, is an EU based company. Um, and so we. I, you know, it's, it, it can absolutely work here in the United States, but, you know, Ripple has already spent $200 million uh, defending their use case or trying to get clarity, you know, same with Coinbase cracking everything we're seeing. I, 
we can just go to the EU, exactly that. My car is there. It's coming live this year. Uh, it's as clear as can be. It allows us to to kind of enter the market and, and go from there. And and then, you know, really the path from there is is obviously the UK, uh, me, you know, MENA, Dubai, uh, Asia. They're, they're all very welcoming of this new economy. They understand it's not... It, it, it's a technology. It's not a, a, an entire, you know, kind of escape from reality. It's just you're you're replacing SWIFT, and and the United States is very defensive of their SWIFT system because you know, we saw them even during the Ukraine-Russia conflict. Like that was the only power they had was to cut Russia off using SWIFT, and they they feel they'd be losing that power. I think is part of my my conspiracy theory. Yeah. No, I completely agree. I mean, this is a big big debate that's sort of been happening since you know, Bitcoin was, became a thing. It's this idea that inherently a lot of the way that you control populace, that you control, you know, decision-making across governments around the world is money supply and understanding how to control money is one of those factors. And so I think the big reason why there's so much resistance to change ties back to, you know, our previous conversation, this idea that, you know, how do you build an economic system where you're able to preserve some of that power, some of that control, some of Um, that wealth? And then how does everything that's going on in this distributed ecosystem that's around the world, how do you then take that and turn it into something that remains favorable to you? And I think the inability to sort of create something within that is causing even more resistance to change because it's specifically made to be decentralized and it's made to enable a little bit more uh, ability, uh, more power for people that are, you know, anywhere in the world that are in markets that traditionally would be ignored in, you know, innovation ecosystems that would traditionally be completely undersupported or underfunded in places where you, you know, that might be completely conflicting with your political views or your, you know, current status on the world. And so I think this is what we're going to have to face is this idea. And Americans, I think, are going to have to really stand up and say that this is a problem because it obviously, you know, the SEC will continue to act as it as it so chooses. And I don't think we're going to see an end to, uh, you know, punitive reactions from regulators. I think we're going to continue to see that. And for the foreseeable future, you're going to continue to see delays. You're going to continue to see, you know, lack of clarity up until the point where, you know, American retailers can really say, hey, this is a problem. We want first access to innovation as we've always had. Um, And it's just not the case anymore. And so until citizens stand up for it, you're really not going to see anything change, I think. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I'd, I'd even argue to a certain point, consumers have stood up. We've seen, you know, a record rise of Americans trying to access cryptocurrencies. But, but I would say that, you know, what's been offered to date is, you know, garbage. You know, yeah, it's, so that's it's the it, market risk is that if you're doing it yeah. outside of that, then you're increasing the likelihood that you won't have access yeah. to top in class, but you'll have access to whatever's available in in that market, in that like hidden market. Right. Yeah. Which was I, the entire purpose of regulation in the first place. And then now it sort of defeats it's defeating its own purpose, um, which is crazy to me. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and here we are, you know, still it's been um over a year since, uh, since the collapse of, of FTX. Yeah. Um, you know, we've, we've, we've now seen that the FTX, one of the reasons why, uh, you know, the, the Bitcoin ETF kind of dropped so drastically from its launch is, is they sold a billion dollars. Yeah. Um, the, the estate sold a billion dollars worth of, of Bitcoin, 
um, out of the FTX treasury. <clears throat> now, I think, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of things we can go into there. I don't want to spend too much time on FTX. Um, but, but, you know, right now they're automatically saying there's, there's things to follow. There's people trying to sue, uh, the, the current court ordered, uh, group that's in there. I mean, these people are charging, um, you know, 1500 to $2,000 an hour, um, you know, to be in there. And so there's a lot of issues. Uh, and now there's going to be an independent organization because this entire thing, you know, again, going from a startup to the, the largest exchange in the world, you know, uh, clearly was done with a lot more fraud than, than we're being showed. I, I know a lot of insiders there. I'm sure you do as well. Yeah. Um, the stories aren't winding up. And so I, I think this is a good thing and I, I hope to get clarity, but I, I hope that they also come out with a like common sense regulation um, that, that allows us to do this. And, and to be clear, FTX issue, in my opinion, and you can say whatever the case is, had nothing to do with cryptocurrencies. It was just plain old white collar crime. Um, yeah. Same as Bear Stearns, same as anything else. Yeah, I mean, to be, I love saying, you know, when I, when the news first started to get on the radar before it was even made public, I had a lot of friends check in on me that were saying things like, you know, are you okay? How, how exposed are you? You know, so on and so forth. And I was like, what are you even talking about? And they're like, didn't you move everything to FTX? And I'm like, why on earth would I do that? And they kept saying, well, because he's an impact guy. And I was like, what? Like to any real impact person, their entire agenda relied on solely carbon credits and not even the investments that they promised. And so when I started deep diving into like their bad behavior, all of it was really like they were an exchange that was ultimately acting like both a bank and a VC, which inherently ties up the liquidity you're supposed to have as an exchange. And so I think fundamentally, this was really like a business model conflict of interest between what a, the business model was supposed to be versus the actions and decisions that they were making with their own liquidity. So I think very much correct in that it wasn't about cryptocurrency. It was really about the way that this organization was run, the decisions, the strategic decisions that were made and the verticals that they sort of took the money and then and then invested. Like if you are an, a bank and you're tying up all of your liquidity in you know startups that may take years to exit, then you have a very big problem with your liquidity and you've got to figure out how to, you know, put your eggs in multiple baskets to ensure that that doesn't get tied up. And if you're an exchange, which is supposed to have even more liquidity than a bank, then now we're saying, you know, this line of thinking of investing in startups is a little crazier if you're tying up most or if not all of your liquidity and into these kinds of investments. So it's really risky behavior all around. Um, That doesn't even even count giving themselves billion dollar loans out of client funds with with no collateral or anything else. No, of course. And compensation packages and all of this, you know, crazy, (laughs) crazy talk. Um, Yeah, it was just all around bad behavior. But then this goes back into inherently this discussion on like, what is regulation for if not to protect investors, to provide standards for transparency? And if you have a body that is resistant to providing clarity around those rules, then inherently you defeat the purpose of your own existence. And, you know, I am a very big libertarian sound, like even when it doesn't sound that way, I am, I am a very big libertarian, but I also think there's room for multiple ecosystems to be taking place at once. And one of those is a heavily regulated ecosystem. And there are moments in my life where I want to participate in a responsible market that has oversight and that has, you know, these trust measures built in and sadly, transparency. yeah, we aren't we aren't really enabling that for a what it can be robustly positive ecosystem um, that cryptocurrencies can enable and that blockchain can enable. And so I really it sort of pains me that we're at this place where it's like this really big tug of war between, you know, bad crypto and bad digital assets and bad actors. And, you know, but then the industry itself demanding 
you know, the ability to build trust and the standards and guidelines by which they have to abide. And I think Coinbase illustrated that perfectly when they had to, you know, sue. So, you know, who's making really good money? Lawyers. It's a great time to be a lawyer. Great time. As, yep. As, especially because yeah. nobody understands this. So, yeah. and your same thing. And, and and again, I look at the FTX, last FTX story is good news for, for the cryptocurrency industry. And I look at this one right here uh, as another good story, uh, you know, so chain analysis. Um, you know, crime's gone down uh, almost thirty percent in, in last year. Uh, they're giving a large, uh, a large amount of this to to Sam Bankman. Um, so we just said that 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 you know FTX was not cryptocurrency related, um, but there was a lot of you know misuse of funds that just happened to be cryptocurrencies, and so they were they were kind of counting that as as fraudulent use. Okay, that's fine, whatever the case is. So so one person was accounting for almost, you know, 30% or almost a quarter of, of the crime out there. Uh, but my favorite person to always bring up when I when we talk about this is, is Elizabeth Warren, because um, she just talks about the same stories all over. And, and I think, uh, I don't know if we have the story in, in, in our, our list right now. Um, but, you know, she's pointing out this $900,000 of cryptocurrencies that was used in, in, in a money laundering case. Um, and she actually got community noted uh, on Twitter that, and, and it stated, they go, that's, you know, okay. But that same exact, you know, crime syndicate uh, had 900 million plus dollars in, in U.S. Uh, fiat currency. So a hundred X, you know, increase over that was, was done by the currency of what she's supposed to be overseeing. So it's, it's yeah. kind of like, you can you can money launder with anything. We just saw Hunter Biden just got busted for money laundering with with paintings and art. Um, that doesn't mean you're banning art. Yeah, um, I mean it's one of those things. I was actually on a plane watching a movie about this. That you know the art money the money pathway of laundering through art, and I think it's one of those things where to me Elizabeth Warren is really she criticizes anything that she cannot control or that she does not believe is on her side, right? We had this conversation, I think, in a past podcast where like, you know, Ukraine could receive all the amount of money that they wanted via cryptocurrency, but not Palestinians, right? And so once it's Palestine receiving, you know, aid money or whatever, then it's like terrorists are receiving money. But if it's Ukraine, it's, you know, silence, radio silence. Like she wasn't saying it was positive, but she was just like, there was nothing to say about that. And so I think really she illustrates this type of, resistance to change that seems to be the theme, the ongoing theme of this episode, which is this resistance to change into something that does not fit your perspective of what the world should look like. It does not preserve your power. It does not preserve your wealth. And therefore it is a bad thing. And I think she really embodies that to me um, over and over again through her interviews. I think, you know, crime being down is incredible. I'd be really curious to see like what some of the factors are that, you know, that they've found contributed to this aside from um, sort of bad actors being removed from the ecosystem. I think, you know, there's also this, this idea to me that as crypto becomes much more mainstream adopted and you're sort of seeing huge, you know, Fortune 100 and 500 companies playing around with crypto, you're starting to see, you know, off offerings of products and services that are regulated in markets other than the U.S. and some in the U.S. Um, and I think that that might also lead to this idea that, you know, there's less opportunity to commit crime when there's more responsible actors in the ecosystem, which again goes back to this idea of enabling that ecosystem to take place in the first place. And I think Europe's done a very good job at that. And a few other markets around the world have also done a very good job at that. Yeah, no, I completely agree. 
Um, let's see. So, oh, here we go. So, uh, bricks, I, I have said, you know, for years I, I've been talking about bricks as this is the number one concern, uh, yeah. to the U S dollar. This is, this is the largest thing that we need to deal with. Uh, so Russia and India have announced a partnership to build a modern digital, uh, economy infrastructure aimed to become, uh, the leaders. Uh, and I don't think it's the IT sector, but essentially the, the, um, the, the world economic, uh, sector. So, uh, you know, bricks is, uh, Brazil, Russia, India, uh, China, and South Africa. Uh, we just saw uh, Argentina said no to go into there. There's a number of other countries. I think there's another like nine or ten countries that have signed up, but they're not, you know, going to increase the acronym. Um, to me, this is like it's a big, big, big deal um, because the U.S. dollar was always the petrol dollar. That was the the rate of exchange. You could go anywhere in the world, and and you know they recognize the U.S. dollar. Um, you know, now losing, you know, that much on this part of the world, I think it's going to be, you know, really tough. And I think that when you have something like cryptocurrencies done right, and, and I'm, I'm not saying that everyone's done it right. I'm clearly saying a lot of people have done it wrong, but if you do a smart, a correct smart contract, you do it well, you're transparent, you have good governance, you have good regulation. Um, there is no way that a fiat, you know, a traditional fiat can match the speed, clarity, and, and ability, um, to, to kind of have, have, uh, transparency and auditing uh, to prevent uh, things like what we just talked about and everything else. So I, I think this is a bigger deal that, and we know China has been trying to come out with one, uh, but if they do this right, I think it could be real danger to the United States dollar. Yeah. I mean, I think we've been hearing this story for a little bit, but I think what makes this timing particularly interesting is that there's a specific partnership between Russia and India to do this. And I think that that's been really like one of the missing pieces, right? Is that ideally for this to actually be able to happen, you would need to sort of allow allow this to creep up on each of the economies of the stakeholders that are involved, right? And so if Russia and India start enabling certain types of features of, you know, cross-border payments, wholesale CBDC, recognizing each other's currency, you know, pegged to something, then all of these like little actions, I think, really lead to the establishment of this kind of ecosystem, where before it was really like this idea of, all of them sort of agreeing to do it and then um, saying, okay, well, we're committed to exploring it or whatever. Having two countries actively recognize each other's economy and economic infrastructure in order to be able to sort of lay the groundwork for this is really where you're going to start to see the first few things that are going to set the precedent for this being a reality. And so I think it's really exciting to me to sort of see that this is, you know, a deal between two countries that are specifically saying we recognize each other's economic infrastructure enough to be able to find commonalities and then build the IT that corresponds to that. Um, the other thing is, yes, Argentina said no, and we can dive into Argentina at any given point in time. Um, but I think one of the really exciting bits about this is also that, you know, these countries are take, starting to take form not just on the economic standpoint, but also on the political standpoint. So right now, South Africa is at a reputational high, like an all-time reputational high. People absolutely love South Africa. It's super Googled. Um, like their, let's say their country brand is at, at this incredible peak. And, and so I think that one of the factors here is this idea that if these countries sort of start leveraging this reputational high, you know, India's doing really well on the innovation standpoint, like they're investing in so many different types of projects. People are starting to look at them, not just as like builders of tech as they used to be, because they obviously have always been like an epicenter of outsourcing. But if they're actually perceived as like leading some of this, and then mm -hmm. you bring in South Africa's attempt to 
uh, sort of be a leader or, you know, a political leader, then I think all of these things combined with this, like, you know, ability to set these presidents via Russia and India partnership, then I think you've really got the groundwork for something that can truly challenge the U.S. And obviously the way that the SEC is going, I don't know how it's going to respond to this in a way that's effective and fast enough unless they start to get their ducks in a row ASAP. Um, but again, I'm kind of skeptical about that at the moment. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I spent, uh, spent some time in South Africa last year and I can tell you it was the, one of the highest attended conferences that I hosted or was around with. And what was most critical is that, you know, when you ask the audience or you talk to anyone, you know, how, how, you know, why are you interested in cryptocurrencies? And they go, corruption is so bad. Yeah. It, it, there is so much fraud. There's so much corruption. There is, there is no transparency that they can see where this is the future and they believe in the economic engine of their country. But there's right now, there's no way to get over the hump of they don't be like money goes into the government and just doesn't come out. And so they, they look at this as the, as a, as a true way to kind of revamp the entire system and eliminate fraud. Um, and, and so I can tell you from the United States perspective, when people see BRICS, they don't think of, you know, clear transparency, regulated, um, you know, and honest, uh, but that's really what it is. I mean, and I think the United States could have led with this and they're, they're continually falling behind. So, yeah, well, the other big thing is also, you know, there are many powers at play here because you've got a lot of international uh, entities that sort of are responsible for a lot of the rails for mm-hmm. the international yep. economics to take place, right? You've got BIS, you've got the World Bank, you've got a lot of different entities that sort of come into play. But uh, the fact that, you know, several companies are coming together, or sorry, several countries are coming together, and the fact that they've got this like economic force and also political force and now, you know, positive brand impressions, then I think that that really changes the conversation around how different institutions try to support this. And so, you know, if, if they together as a unit approach, you know, a BIS and say, Hey, this is what we want to get done. You know, BIS can't just automatically discount it any, you know, any more than, than it can discount the U.S., which is, has been historically such a powerful force to do it. And so the fact that they're sort of amassing this, brand capital, both on the economic front and on the political front as a unit, I think makes it a really serious threat this time around, as opposed to some of the announcements that we've heard prior to this moment. Today's episode is proudly sponsored by Beyond Enterprises, the ultimate 360-degree partner for companies ready to embrace the power of blockchain in their business strategies. Beyond Enterprises stands out as a beacon of expertise with a blockchain-agnostic approach that has seen successful projects on Ethereum, EOS, and ARC. Guided by blockchain thought leaders and fueled by inspired advisors, the team has played a pivotal role in over 40 successful ventures, spanning token generation events, security token offerings, exchanges, and more. From healthcare to travel, finance, and beyond, Beyond Enterprises has left a massive mark on diverse industries. Elevate your business strategy today with pioneers of blockchain integrations, Beyond Enterprises, trusted 360 partner. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, spent some, uh, last week, uh, one of our guests was, um, uh, one of the founders of, of digital pound foundation. Um, so I, this is really interesting because, you know, you even mentioned it before, you know, UK is not part of the EU anymore. Um, so we, you know, they're kind of having to rebuild their entire infrastructure since being cut off. And I will say, you know, I, again, I, I was all over the world last year, spent a lot of time in London. Um, <laughs> there was no one that wasn't upset about, you know, Brexit, yeah. uh, feeling, you know, like, Hey, even those that were for it have recognized, you know, that the, the pains of which they're dealing with there, because there, there's no bridge to really connect them to the people that 
they used to do business with. You know, when you're in 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 you know London, you know every one of them had businesses. You know, in you know uh, Liechtenstein, Switzerland, um, you know Germany, all these other countries, and now they've been really cut off from there. So. Um, you know, seeing, uh, you know, digital pounds starting to get this together, which will help enable those cross-border payments and speed back up that those transaction times. Um, a lot of that's what we're seeing, you know, this for, but, uh, I know you yeah. spend a bunch of time in this as well. Yes. And I also, I love, love being in London, but now I need a visa. Um, it's the first time I ever need a visa to go. Um, yeah. So I think, uh, I think it's an interesting one because indeed it sets, it sets the, proper foundation for needing digital infrastructure. So I think it, on the bright side, it's, you know, one of those things that is a catalyst to adopting digital infrastructure. So I'm excited by that. At the same time, a big piece of this will be its ability to enable certain cross-border functions, right? So the whole value add of a digital infrastructure, in addition to, you know, enhancing trust and enhancing uh, transaction speed is this ability to do more with it that extends past your own country or your own borders and limitations, right? So I think a big thing will be, okay, even if the UK is doing this in, you know, in a very fast way, is it able to bring alongside it other entities that would then make this a, a really valuable ecosystem to them? So if one of the biggest, you know, uh, consequences of Brexit has been that people are frustrated by what's going on on the cross-border front. If this digital infrastructure does not have a solution to that, then ultimately they might also face resistance to adoption because realistically speaking, ordinary citizens might already, you know, have some trust issues and also some resistance to adopting this digital infrastructure. And it will be made more so if they can't actually do what they are now facing trouble doing um, through it. And so I think it'll be an interesting Thing, and that I hope that as much you know force as they're putting into this project technologically, that they're stacking up the ecosystem and rollout approaches to this because ultimately that's going to be the make or break uh, factor for the success of this this project. Yeah, no, absolutely, and I, I think for people that don't understand, you know, truly cross border payments and how much of a pain in the you know what they are, um, mm-hmm. you know, it, it is right now in the United States or really anywhere if you're if you're on Swift Rails you have to start that payment, you know, seven to 10 days in advance. Um, and so you're talking about, you know, the loss of funds, the loss of, of all this stuff. And, and just like, Hey, you, you have to move it. It moves so slow. So smart contracts and all this other stuff, you know, you can speed this down to, to minutes or hours, uh, even if it gets down to a couple of days, you know, that's a, a huge, huge win. Um, so let's see, EU, uh, is about to outlaw and restrict, uh, some of the most, you know, kind of prolific, uh, prizes of, of, of DeFi and everything else. Um, but, but I also, you know, I spent a lot of time with my cut, my car. Um, I know you do as well. And so some of these, I, I think are, we'll just kind of walk through them because some of them are like, I'm okay with, um, you know, and a lot of this has to do with, we're moving out of like kind of the dark phase of, of DeFi, which is, you know, uh, anonymous, you know, no, no regulation, no nothing. It's just, it's a free for all. It's the wild west. And, and in my opinion, it just doesn't work. Like it hasn't worked. Um, you know, there, there's tons of innovation, but there's so much fraud. There's so much theft. There's so much, you know, a misunderstanding of all these things, rug pulls, everything else, um, that, that it's okay. There can all, there's always going to be a DeFi that like, same as there's always going to be a dark web. Um, but majority of people are going to choose to do business on, you know, on Amazon or an eBay or, or something that has like clear, transparent governance, uh, than they do on, you know, some, some random DeFi exchange and everything else. So, uh, you know, right now they're just, you know, privacy coins, anything that, that could be used for money laundering or to remove, uh, and anonymity, uh, is, is going away. 
uh, KYC AML OFAC compliance, which is the standard around the world, whether you're on Swift or blockchain, uh, is is going to be a thing. Um, and then really, you know, kind of getting into you know a lot of this has to do with anti money laundering, as you know. I mean, like that's the goal is that. You want control, just enough control to make sure it's not being used illicitly, uh, but but you don't want to stop the flow of commerce. And so I think that's a really hard challenge for governments. Yeah. I mean, I also think this is one of those conversations that really requires a lot of nuance because I think historically speaking, identity and identifiability and control have sort of been conflated in our ecosystem. Like if your transactions are identifiable, therefore you've got no control. But actually this kind of regulation sort of is a precedent for us responding in a way that separates those two things, right? Like just because you operate in the light and having gone through KYC, AML and so on and so forth does not inherently mean that whatever entity or enterprise is controlling or enabling your transactions has that control over your funds, right? Like the principle of sovereign money can coexist with identifiability. It cannot con- it cannot coexist with like the idea that that there are mechanisms and features in place that can strip you of your own you know ability to handle your money, to withdraw, to so on and so forth. So I think here is where we really need to kind of go through this legislation with a fine tooth comb and say where is the separation between control and identifiability because those two things are really the key factors in being able to preserve the actual value add of a decentralized, you know, finance ecosystem versus this ability to say, you know, we are preventing crime from doing so. So to me, really like the concern or like thing to keep an eye out for is this like harmony between identifiability and control. And I think if we are able to say, okay, most of your, you know, what you do sort of can be identifiable because that's what the regulation says, that still enables the individual to not get lost in the ecosystem that we have now, which is a bank can inherently freeze your funds, can do, you know, X, Y, Z, can tell you, we won't give you a return unless X, Y, Z. And so this idea that you can still manage your money. You can still protect your money. You can still, you are the ultimate, you know, holder of your property and manager of your property, uh, property being money in this case, then ultimately identifiability doesn't necessarily really impact that if done right. Yep. Yeah, no. And and I, I think that number one, you're right on, on there. You know, part of this other one is around something we, we touched on earlier, which is, you know, why are Bitcoin ETFs are popular because no one wants to hold custody on this. And so yeah. part of my car is, 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 is really taking a shot at one of the weakest points of cryptocurrencies, which is, you know, self-custody. Um, yeah. I think it's everyone's right. You, you should absolutely do it. it yeah. It's a horrible idea. Um, it is, most people are not prepared. I don't care how savvy you are. I know people that are, you've been in the space, you know, 10 plus years that are losing, that have lost funds or losing funds or, and can't even understand what happened or why. Um, and so, you know, the ability to have these in a, in a regulated institution, and by the way, in, in, uh, under MIFID, under, under MIFID two or, or my car, um, it's not a very expensive license to be a custodian. Like, so you're just saying like, Hey, I want to be a custodian. You know, you're going to use someone like Firebox or, or BitGo or whoever it is, as, as your back end. Um, and then, you know, it's your, it's your funds. We're not going to touch them. And by the way, here's all the things to make sure it's there. But, but the people holding their own keys, um, and wanting to be their own bank and, and, and deal with their own KYC. Um, I, I, it's going to be niche. It's always going to exist. I think it's absolutely right. I'm not saying that it shouldn't exist. Um, I just think it's going to be a teeny tiny little fraction of the market compared to what yeah, it is. Yeah. And that's, that's fine. So long as that option exists, which is why I'm going to like really hammer this point in is that identifiability and self custody should be able to coexist, right? Like mm-hmm. inherently, even if you reported 
your wallet or even if there were some way to make your transactions, your not your transactions, but your wallet identifiable, but then you still are able to preserve that self-custody. I think that that is also something that's really like it still enables regulators to vet this like anti-money laundering requirement. But at the same time, it enables the self-custody, which was one of the principal value adds of the ecosystem in the first place. And so I agree with you completely that the, the market will be dominated by custodial solutions. But I think a big element of this is, can we separate identity and control and identifiability and control? And can, in regulation, these two live in harmony, enabling, you know, options for consumers, which at the end of the day should be really the primary mandate of a free market is really to enable consumers to have options to make their own decisions, informed or uninformed, by the way, um, but to make their own decisions and to ultimately be able to live within a regulated regulated and safe environment by having this identifiability factor, but still be able to make choices about their own pr- property. And I think that that's the aspiration of any free market. And if we are not able to find that harmony in regulation, then I think that that's where we run into a lot of, you know, these frictions between uh, how citizens feel and how governments feel. Um, I have to really go through this regulation with a fine tooth comb in order to figure out where, you know, whether that harmony exists. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I've spent, I've spent a lot of time with it. And I will say that's why, you know, FinRAMP is being built in the EU is because it's, it's so crystal clear. Um, it is, it's MIFID, it's MIFID two, which is, you know, the gold standard literally, uh, and, and then just kind of adapted for, for tokenomics and, and digital, uh, digital assets. <clears throat> but, you know, one of the points that I think that we really need to start having the conversation around is, is, is that privacy, you know, GDPR, um, does exist. Like I don't want you know, anyone in the world to know every single thing I'm buying or, or selling or who I'm doing business with. And, um, you know, it's one of the things that, that cryptocurrencies is just bad. It's just, it's all there. I mean, I was in, uh, uh Switzerland this, this, uh, this past year, a whole bunch of times and, and they're very much, you know, Hey, Bitcoin, Ethereum, you know, you can pay for it anywhere else. And I'm literally like standing there outside of like a food vendor and they're like, here, scan this and you can pay with Ethereum. And like, I'm as cryptocurrency, you know, pro as you're going to get. I'm like, there is no way there's not a chance that I would I would ever use that because now my wallet would be forever connected to this street vendor and God knows who they're doing business with and anyone would be able to say, oh, he, he did business with, they don't know who that is. So yeah. there's really this need for, you know, very similar to how a bank helps, you know, protect your identity where only certain people need access to it. And you can argue who should need access to it of anyone, but but it's audible, it's regulated and, and you can do, you know, buy and sell stocks all day long. It doesn't say Jay Steinbeck is buying and selling. It says your broker is buying and selling. And, and then, you know, it's, it's the records are kept in the back end. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, also a big thing here is the permanence of data, right? Like one of the, one of the interesting things that are up for debate in my mind about the value out of blockchain is inherently like you are creating a, what is supposed to be a permanent record of all of these transactions. Right. And mm-hmm. that to me is a question that is up for debate. Like what is the degree of permanence that we need in society to be able to find this harmony between, you know, the fact that you are a trusted player and the fact that we don't want to know everything about you. And the fact that some of the transactions are actually completely irrelevant and nobody needs to know them. And we have, I think, collectively as a society, just gone on this like big data mentality where like we need all the data and then we need to apply AI onto it. And then we need to source all the insights and all of those will turn into like derivative offerings for your convenience and your safety and your protection and your whatever. And so we've got this like idea that all of this data requires 
permanence. And I don't think that that should be the case. I think that we really should be having conversations about what data really no longer has a place in the world, how to get rid of it and how to in, in like involve these safety mechanisms whereby like, do I really need to know that you, you know, peer to peer paid for Coca-Cola, you know, at your local neighborhood because I don't, right? And that data will really not matter to anyone but Coca-Cola once probably, or like beverage industry once maybe. And so I think this notion that where AI can be really, really valuable is to create this like category of insights, but then help us make decisions on a few transactions that really like, they could just stop existing and the world would be fine and we could move on without it. And then you as a you know, user of this technology could feel safer in knowing that like not all of your transactions will be on there forever and that you do have some level of, you know, shielding from people knowing all of everything that you're up to with your money. And I think that that's a really important feature. But unfortunately, I feel most innovators and most regulators and most of the world today is locked on this big data idea. And we really need to challenge that by asking you know, what are your what is your stance on the permanence of data and how does that how does your product reflect that? Yeah, hundred uh, percent. And and by the way, here in our next story is the exact reason why. Um, you know, so it, it is. And again, I'm I'm not Canadian, um, so you know, I, I enjoy freedom of speech while it still exists here in the United States. Uh, but Canada's use of law freezing uh, use of the law to freeze protesters' cryptocurrency donations was was just deemed unconstitutional constitutional. Uh, so the Federal Court of Canada deemed the emergency law used to freeze funds and crypto donations to protesting truckers as unreasonable and unconstitutional. Uh, the law was invoked uh, by the Canadian government claiming the national emergency during the uh, during the Freedom Convey protests during uh, COVID-19 restrictions. So essentially just as a, you know, people just said, hey, I, I support the voice that these truckers are trying to do. Um, they don't, they may or may not know every single thing that, that, that there was happening, you know, any traffic violations, I, you know, I don't know. Um, and I, by the way, I also don't know what, what the laws around, you know, peaceful protesting or, or, or protesting the government are in Canada. Um, but in the same sense, if someone donated, you know, cryptocurrencies to this goes, yeah, you know, Hey, I'll give them 10 bucks, whatever the case is. Um, a lot of people had their bank accounts frozen for, for donating yeah. to this. You know, a lot of people had, you know, their, 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 um, not USDC, um, but, you know, did, did have, you know, their, their accounts at, at Coinbase and other, uh, you know, cryptocurrencies entirely frozen for making that donation. And I think it highlights, you know, before why there's need for privacy because, you know, to my knowledge, you know, they were not deemed a terrorist organization. It was not an OFAC uh, issue in any way, shape, or form. Um, you know, the, these are these are people that were protesting their government, and and I don't know what was you know, legal or not legal. Um, but then to have your entire bank account frozen because you may have you know given twenty dollars uh, to them, I mean that that's what's really scary, and that's why people are so against CDBCs. Yeah, I mean, this story is like really interesting to me. I mean, on the one hand, I COVID-19 contributed to my dad's death. So I have like very strong feelings about like, you know, staying safe across, you know, these kinds of, of diseases. This story still horrifies me. Like I cannot true. I truly cannot believe that we have reached a point where control is so overt in that sense. Like when you were saying that it is bad for someone to have an opinion and to be able to support that opinion challenges like every notion of a free society that we've had in a really long time. I mean, to be honest, like Canada has consistently branded itself as, you know, a free society where freedom of speech is respected and so on and so forth. And then you see these kinds of actions and it's really, you know, 
really a, an illustration of how people are more resistant to change when it challenges conventional structures of power. And I think it really is frustrating. And then I can see how it would set their innovation agenda back when they're trying to use an instrument like a CBDC, but then sort of have a population saying, well, we don't trust you to, you know, keep maintain our control. And this is where, again, identifiability and control are huge. I think identifiability and saying, hey, you know, these these people, you know, might not be respecting COVID restrictions, however you feel about what the government wants to do about that, you know, whatever. But at the same time, your money should never be frozen, right? Because it is inherently your property. And so, you know, whether the government wanted to send a fine to anyone that had had donated, whether they, you know, they had options that did not include seizing property. And I think the trust factor in saying we're going to seize your property because we can, and these are the institutions that enable that. And by the way, we're building this digitally now is really not going to help anyone. And there's going to be so much blowback on that. And I, I think we actually haven't even seen the full blowback of this case yet. I think people are growing increasingly frustrated um, at, you know, governments that are trying to act in this way. And I think I've seen so many pitches for CBDCs over the past few years that are trying to solve all of these huge international and huge national problems using these instruments. And I have yet to meet, you know, a person that hasn't thought critically about the features that need to be included in it that is in favor of it. Like if, if you're in the periphery of the space or outside of the space, no one wants this. Yeah. And I, I think there's two, there's, there's you know, two points I want to touch on. One is I, I think that's why there's choice needed. So I think that it's yeah. great that there's USDC by circle, a USDT by tether, um, you know, PayPal had their own for a few minutes. So I think there's, you know, it's okay to have banks uh, or institutions branding their own stable coin as, you know, that's tied to an actual physical asset. Um, it's good. And the thing that I want to point out here, cause I just, it, it drives me crazy is, um, you know, million. They're saying that millions of dollars of cryptocurrency was raised, but the exact amount remains unclear due to tracking challenges. Bullshit. Bullshit. You you can call right now, Chainalysis or Elliptic, and in an hour they will tell you the exact amount to the penny, exactly where it went, every single wallet that was included. This this is exactly the problem we have with with governments. Um, and, and just there, when you when you want to talk to people that are educated like us. That this doesn't fly because we now now everything you're saying is a lie. Like yeah. when you yeah. state state something like that, you've lost all credibility, all validity of your entire argument because there's no way that's true. But we've seen this happen over and over and over again. Whereby, like even you know, back to Elizabeth Warren, who's our favorite human, um, you know, she also sort of says, well, you know, this money is being sent to terrorist organizations and whatever. But then when you start to actually break down what she's saying, she she doesn't actually have a lot of factual, you know, no. support, evidentiary support to say that. And then it has zero bearing on the quantity of dollars that have been doing the same thing for years. And so I think we've sort of seen, and I swear to God, this, the episode title for this, you know, has to be something in relation to the resistance of change and how that impacts, you know, power dynamics, because ultimately yeah. that's what this is. This is saying the Canadian government does not agree with your position, and therefore we will act punitively to prevent you from exercising this, you know, decision. And we've seen that repeatedly across, you know, U.S. and Canada and a couple other governments who are hyper-resistant to change. And they're saying, you know, we will find a way to punish you, even if the facts are not all there. And this to me just says, you know, that line that you highlighted just says, we haven't done our diligence. We just are in complete disagreement with 
you know, your position. And therefore, everyone kind of gets swept under the rug of, you know, being punished, regardless of how, you know, yeah. uh, tangentially they were involved in, in this debate. Yeah, we, we need to pause your freedoms because you hurt our feelings. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think that that's, that's just, not, this is why, and that's why Bitcoin exists. So, so last story of the day, uh, just because we need to need to mix in a little bit of AI. We've been so heavy on regulation, cryptocurrency, blockchain, smart contracts. Uh, Got to bring in a little bit of of continuing with with the fear of the government or the government pushing fear on us. I guess I should say. Um, so right now, the doomsday clock, which seems like it's always been you know a, a fraction away from the end of humanity since the, since the '60s and the Cold War. Um, you know, they're now moving it even further. So the the major concerns: uh, nuclear war. Again, same thing since uh, the Cold War. Uh, since World War II, uh, climate change, which has been a heavy focus. Uh, were you at Davos, by the way? Not this year, but yes, last year. So, you know, major conferences with world leaders about this, uh, biological threats, you know, that's that's a new one coming, you know, with with COVID and a variety of other things. Uh, mm-hmm. Now AI, uh, you know, now, now computers, the ones that we loved and, and we appreciated, you know, now they're going to kill us at some point. So we need to worry about this. Um, my my thought on on this is is a little different on this. Uh, so I, I I've been following Elon's uh, um, Optimus project, his his uh, robots and, and everything else he's doing, and and he's planning on next year. He just said in the Tesla uh, earnings call yesterday, uh, they're going to start manufacturing Optimus, which is their their little robot, um, you know, in twenty five, and they believe they're going to make an initial batch of ten million. Uh, Gen ones over the next few years, uh, they will be AI powered. They will be there, and I think that's a very different fear because <laughs> now we're getting into the Terminator thing of like, hey, my computer is going to do some weird stuff uh, on its own. To like, they actually have access to real world tasks and rules. Uh, what, what's on this list? What's got you the most fearful? Um, I mean, just given the state of how many conflicts and wars there are currently active across nuclear powers, I think that's always like a scary thing. But I think everyone's, you know, pretty much consensus is that we should not use nuclear weapons. Climate change is always something that I'm, you know, deeply concerned about as someone that spends a lot of time on islands or in places that are prone for, you know, first natural disasters and very destructive natural disasters. I think what I find really funny in this, though, and I just can't believe it's phrased this way, but the fact that AI itself is a threat and yeah. not like what, like the actors that use AI in certain ways, um, it's a really interesting way to use like language in a passive way to blame the tech as opposed to blame the people. And so they're saying like AI is the problem. And then they lower down, say it poses risks in military applications. Okay. But you know, then the threat isn't really AI. The threat is military organizations using AI. And I just think that that's a really interesting and ironic thing in saying AI has the potential to magnify disinformation as you are actively disinforming people by saying AI has the capacity on its own to do all of these bad things, whereas we're not really blaming the creators or the developers or the enablers and, and builders of this tech and all of its possible applicability. AI has amazing, amazing applicability in positive directions. It's done a world of good in the health sector. It's done a world of good in supply chain, in consumer convenience, in all of these different things. But we're not saying that. We're saying the dramatic advance poses a risk because of its military applications. Then in reality, the military is a threat here, not the the technology itself. And I've, you know, so to me, I it's not that I'm trying to downplay AI or its role in, you know, possible ongoing global risk, 
But I think it's really one of these things where the narrative matters a lot because we're blaming a technology that cannot, it really cannot exist without the enablement of humanity. And so it's really looking at, well, who is using AI in these possible directions? Who's doing a lot of the research that enables these military applications? And how is that being safeguarded? And where's the risk management strategy and how that's being safeguarded? And and that's really, to me, uh, the critical problem and why I would pose, I do agree that it's one of the biggest risks, but I don't agree it's because of the tech. I think it's because of the way that we're talking about the tech, the way that we're managing the ethics around the tech, the way that we're managing risks around the tech, and the way that we're enabling you know, a lack of transparency and increased disinformation on who, where does the buck stop in relation to the development that's going on in the space? I completely agree. And I'll add one more. I, I think that the bigger issue is, is with AI is the total inability to trust anything. Mm-hmm. Um, because AI is so good. Generative is so fast. I mean, there, there will be a time in the next few years that, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the image that you're watching on the screen and, and, you know, the voice that you're hearing like it can 100% be repl- replicated with near perfect mm-hmm. accuracy of my tone, my stutters, everything else that I'm doing that nobody would know if it's me or not me because it's able to generate it th- that so fast. Mm-hmm. Um, it, just as a quick example, we uh, one of my other businesses is we have a, a, a title company for real estate. Um, and, and we had a, a, an issue with, um, you know, we say like we do not send out like the, the emails of where to wire funds. We say it, you know, every time we have people sign off on it and still a couple times a year, people will get that, e- that random email and their wire funds off to the wrong place. Like, so, so how do you, how do you manage wire fraud? You know, so email is a quick, a clear thing. And most of the time we mitigate it by saying, don't trust email, you know, and, and right now the answer is you have to call us, you know, call us. We only will verify and verbalize it over the phone. Well, let's be clear. That's, that's going to go away too. You know, you now have the, like, you will not be able to trust. Um, even if you talk to that title person every single day on the phone, you know, their voice, you know, their mannerisms, everything else, like AI will be able to replicate that voice, replicate everything that you're doing and be able to, to manipulate it on the fly in real time with near perfect accuracy. So to me, like, how do we form an ability to trust? And it, and I think it relates back to, you know, the need for like, what's a human and what's, what's not a human. Um, coming up in the future here? Well, I think there's two things that relate to this. The first is one positive thing, like a silver lining here, is that, you know, over the past few years, we sort of had eroded a lot of critical judgment. Like we were sort of falling for, you know, media and the way that it was presenting stories. We allowed social media to like spread lots of disinformation and so on and so forth. But now we've reached this point where because there's a lack of trust, because we sort of are now having to face this challenge of like, is this an accurate recording? Is this really this person? So on and so forth. Then it actually, to me, is an opportunity to boost critical judgment and sort of ensure that people are asking questions around authenticity that enable us to sort of take a step back from this like rapid spread of misinformation that had been taking place across earlier social media and now wonder, okay, well, is this actually true before it has that chance? And so maybe there's a silver lining there. The other thing that I think is important is on in relation to this trust factor is that companies that are now like Apple, for example, are becoming increasingly important because they have so many different data points that actually authenticity is something that they might have in their pipeline to be able to build products around because all of these different data points that sort of say, okay, well, we have their, you know, facial scan, we've got the fingerprint, we've got certain types of behaviors, we've got geolocation, we've got all of these different data points and, you know, say what you want about the lack of privacy inherently that that means, right? But ultimately these kinds of companies that you leave a, a huge footprint with, 
um, like Apple, become sort of a possible, you know, custodian of trust almost and veracity because they've got sufficient data points to prove or unprove, you know, something that that might be online that, you know, might have been stolen, that might have been, you know, a fraudulent depiction of you. And so it's becoming really interesting to sort of see the directions in which some of these companies go in relation to privacy, security, because they do have that capacity to be enablers of trust for other organizations just by virtue of how much data they have on you itself. It's crazy. Yeah. And and you brought up, uh, you know, Apple and the iPhone, and and I'm sure there's Mm -hmm. the same thing on the Android phones as well, which is the facial recognition and some biometrics and everything else. Um, And in the latest version of iOS that that just came out a a few days ago, uh, you now have the ability to force uh, geolocation uh, with facial ID uh, into into you know pick and choose the apps that you want. So if you have your banking apps, you can actually now for I have to enable this. But if you're away from your 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 home mm-hmm. um, and someone steals your phone and it's a you know a wrench attack, a knife attack, whatever the case is, and they say unlock your phone, that you're gonna you're gonna unlock it. They're gonna run away with your phone and they have an unlocked phone of which they could do a lot of damage with. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that feature meaning that hey, you got away, you got your life saved but your phone is gone and unlocked, that's a scary thing, especially for you know people that deal with cryptocurrencies or, or banking. They're, they now have the ability to say like, no, you have like, they're not going to execute a trade. They're not going to execute a, a transfer without that biometrics there. And I think that's a really good feature yeah. um, to start moving through. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And so I think, but that's inherently what, like this, this idea that you are facing mistrust, you're facing all of these risks, but at the same time, there are going to be certain players that can actually seize this as an opportunity to build features, to build security measures, to build something that differentiates their products. And I think first to market in features like this is going to be, you know, incredibly powerful. So, hey, Apple, if you're listening, let's talk or whatever. Um, but uh, one of those things uh, that is really important. Now, on the flip side of this, of course, is the, the bad actors. And this brings us back to this idea that AI itself is not the threat, but really understanding in uh, really understanding like who is leveraging, you know, AI, what is going on in the space, you know, the, the bad actors and, or just actors in general, like they could be good or bad, but understanding that is really, and not framing the conversation around AI being the threat, I think is really critical to us being able to navigate the, the the threat of AI responsibly and accurately, as opposed to saying AI itself is a threat and then trying to hinder AI innovation because it has really good applications in so many different directions. And so the key question uh, for me is, are we able to sort of escape this narrative, figure out how to get it right because we're framing the conversation in the correct way? And I think the same thing is, it has many parallels with blockchain, which is this idea that blockchain itself, cryptocurrencies themselves are not, a risk. It's really an understanding of how are these projects built, who is building these project projects, um, and then what is it that that we have in place as diligence and trust measures, security measures to ensure that the products that the projects don't go astray. And those, at the end of the day, really showcase the fact that technology itself is never a threat. It's a neutral It's a neutral set of tools, and really, what we need to be paying attention to is how those tools are used, deployed, etc. And I think at the end of the day regulators can really pull from that that discussion because that's what they really need to be looking for. And so these punitive measures in saying, oh, well, we're just going to punish anyone protesting XYZ or we're going to punish anyone that is innovating in this sector or, or other sector, I think that will is actually counterintuitive to the ways to really protect people. And so in tying all of the stories that we've talked about together today, 
It really, really is about understanding, you know, what is going on in the space, educating yourself on who the major players are, how, what are the technical standards being deployed across the space. Innovation should not be hindered. Innovation should be supportive, but it should absolutely come with this cautious and really, uh, you know, dedicated understanding of who is building in the space and how is it being built. And I think that's really the lesson for today's episode, to me at least, in, in tying all of these stories together. Lucia, that was one of the most amazing, uh, you know, kind of just rants. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I can imagine, and I will say that any, any politician, anyone that wants to understand kind of the frustrations that people that live in this space feel every day, uh, just go back and listen to what Lucia just said again. It is, it is so wrapped up in, in you have to, you have to be educated and you have to be hyper-educated on a consistent basis because whatever, whatever Elizabeth is upset about is, is from a story that she read years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, it is not the, the state of, of where we're at today and it's not where we're going and, and we're hindering, you know, everyone moving forward in a positive manner. So, uh, that being said, we, we've kind of hit the end of, uh, of our time. Uh, Lucia, if people want to hear more of, uh, more of your, uh, your thoughts, your, your, your kind of concepts, or, or just kind of want to keep in touch, where's the best place to find you? Definitely a LinkedIn person. Um, I am really, really digging it. It's a good place to, to express thoughts in long form and also have more nuanced conversations. So I'm really digging it these days. Uh, LinkedIn is the place to find me really. Awesome. Fabulous. Uh, Why Wales, thank you as always so much for the time. Lucia, a uh, pleasure. And we'll see you guys next time. Thanks so much. Why Whales was founded in 2021 by Jay Steinbeck, a passionate entrepreneur and business owner with the purpose of bringing YPO and YNG members together in the cryptoverse. Why Whales is a collaborative and confidential community centered around cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology, an exclusive crypto hub of more than 600 members. To be notified when we release new content, please subscribe to our show in your preferred listening app. For more information, visit www.ywhales.com. YWales is not affiliated with YPO, but at this time only allow for YPO, YPO Gold, and YNG members due to privacy and confidentiality. Support and production for today's episode was done by Truthwork Media. Nothing in the podcast constitutes professional and or financial advice, nor does any information on the podcast constitute a comprehensive or complete statement of the matters discussed or the law relating thereto.